Letter ninety nine of Moral Letters to Lucilius by Lucius Annius Seneca. Translated by Richard M. Gummier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On Consolation to the Bereaved. I enclose a copy of the letter which I wrote to Marullus at the time when he had lost his little son and was reported to be rather womanish in his grief. A letter in which I have not observed the usual form of condolence for I do not believe that he should be handled gently, since in my opinion he deserved criticism rather than consolation. When a man is stricken and is finding it most difficult to endure a grievous wound, one must humor him for a while. Let him satisfy his grief, or, at any rate, work off the first shock. But those who have assumed an indulgence in grief should be rebuked forthwith, and should learn that there are certain follies even in tears." Is it solace that you look for? Let me give you a scolding instead. You are like a woman in the way you take your son's death. What would you do if you had lost an intimate friend? A son, a little child of unknown promise, is dead. A fragment of time has been lost. We hunt out excuses for grief. We would even utter unfair complaints about fortune, as if fortune would never give us just reason for complaining. But I had really thought that you possessed spirit enough to deal with concrete troubles, to say nothing of the shadowy troubles over which men make moan through force of habit. Had you lost a friend, which is the greatest blow of all, you would have had to endeavor rather to rejoice because you had possessed him than to mourn because you had lost him. But many men fail to count up how manifold their gains have been, how great their rejoicings, Grief like yours has this among other evils. It is not only useless, but thankless. Has it then all been for nothing that you have had such a friend? During so many years, amid such close associations, after such intimate communion of personal interests, has nothing been accomplished? Do you bury friendship along with a friend? And why lament having lost him, if it be of no avail to have possessed him? Believe me, a great part of those we have loved, though chance has removed their persons, still abides with us. The past is ours, and there is nothing more secure for us than that which has been. We are ungrateful for past gains, because we hope for the future, as if the future, if so be that any future is ours, will not be quickly blended with the past. People set a narrow limit to their enjoyments if they take pleasure only in the present. Both the future and the past serve for our delight, the one with anticipation and the other with memories, but the one is contingent and may not come to pass, while the other must have been. What madness it is, therefore, to lose our grip on that which is the surest thing of all. Let us rest content with the pleasures we have quaffed in past days, if only while we quaffed them the soul was not pierced like a sieve only to lose again whatever it had received. There are countless cases of men who have without tears buried sons in the prime of manhood. Men who have returned from the funeral pyre to the senate chamber or to any other official duties and have straightway busied themselves with something else. And rightly, for in the first place it is idle to grieve if you get no help from grief. In the second place, 
it is unfair to complain about what has happened to one man but is in store for all again it is foolish to lament one's loss when there is such a slight interval between the lost and the loser hence we should be more resigned in spirit because we follow closely those whom we have lost note the rapidity of time that swiftest of things consider the shortness of the course along which we hasten at top speed mark this throng of humanity all straining toward the same point with briefest intervals between them even when they seem longest he whom you count has passed away has simply posted on ahead and what is more irrational than to bewail your predecessor when you yourself must travel on the same journey does a man bewail an event which he knew would take place or if he did not think of death as man's lot he has but cheated himself does a man bewail an event which he has been admitting to be unavoidable whoever complains about the death of any one is complaining that he was a man everyone is bound by the same terms he who is privileged to be born is destined to die periods of time separate us but death levels us the period which lies between our first day and our last is shifting and uncertain if you reckon it by its troubles it is long even to a lad if by its speed it is scanty even to a gray beard everything is slippery treacherous and more shifting than any weather all things are tossed about and shift into their opposites at the bidding of fortune amid such a turmoil of mortal affairs nothing but death is surely in store for any one and yet all men complain about the one thing wherein none of them is deceived but he died in boyhood i am not yet prepared to say that he who quickly comes to the end of his life has the better of the bargain let us turn to consider the case of him who has grown to old age how very little is he superior to the child place before your mind's eye the vast spread of time's abyss and consider the universe and then contrast our so-called human life with infinity you will then see how scant is that for which we pray and which we seek to lengthen how much of this time is taken up with weeping how much worry how much with prayers for death before death arrives how much with our health how much with our fears how much is occupied by our years of inexperience or of useless endeavor and half of all this time is wasted in sleeping and besides our toils our griefs our dangers and you will comprehend that even in the longest life real living is the least portion thereof nevertheless who will make such an admission as a man is not better off who is allowed to return home quickly whose journey is accomplished before he is wearied out life is neither a good nor an evil it is simply the place where good and evil exist hence this little boy has lost nothing except a hazard where loss was more assured than gain he might have turned out temperate and prudent he might with your fostering care have been moulded to a better standard but and this fear is more reasonable he might have become just like the many 
note the youths of the noblest lineage whose extravagance has flung them into the arena note those men who cater to the passions of themselves and others in mutual lust whose days never pass without drunkenness or some signal act of shame it will thus be clear to you that there was more to fear than to hope for for this reason you ought not to invite excuses for grief or aggravate slight burdens by getting indignant i am not exhorting you to make an effort and rise to great heights for my opinion of you is not so low as to make me think that it is necessary for you to summon every bit of your virtue to face this trouble yours is not pain it is a mere sting and it is you yourself who are turning it into pain of a surety philosophy has done you much service if you can bear courageously the loss of a boy who was as yet better known to his nurse than to his father and what then now at this time am i advising you to be hard-hearted desiring you to keep your countenance unmoved at the very funeral ceremony and not allowing your soul even to feel the pinch of pain by no means that would mean lacking a feeling rather than virtue to behold the burial ceremonies of those near and dear to you with the same expression as you beheld their living forms and to show no emotion over the first bereavement in your family but suppose that i forbade you to show emotion there are certain feelings which claim their own rights tears fall no matter how we try to check them and by being shed they ease the soul what then shall we do let us allow them to fall but let us not command them to do so let us weep according as emotion floods our eyes but not as much as mere imitation shall demand let us indeed add nothing to natural grief nor augment it by following the examples of others the display of grief makes more demands than grief itself how few men are sad in their own company they lament the louder for being heard persons who are reserved and silent when alone are stirred to new paroxysms of tears when they behold others near them at such times they lay violent hands upon their own persons though they might have done this more easily if no one were present to check them at such times they pray for death at such times they toss themselves from their couches but their grief slackens with the departure of onlookers in this matter as in others also we are obsessed by this fault conforming to the pattern of the many and regarding convention rather than duty we abandon nature and surrender to the mob who are never good advisers in anything and in this respect as in all others are most inconsistent people see a man who bears his grief bravely they call him undutiful and savage-hearted they see a man who collapses and clings to his dead they call him womanish and weak everything therefore should be referred to reason but nothing is more foolish than to court a reputation for sadness and to sanction tears for i hold that with a wise man some tears fall by consent others by their own force i shall explain the difference as follows when the first news of some bitter loss has shocked us 
when we embrace the form that will soon pass from our arms to the funeral flames. Then tears are wrung from us by the necessity of nature. And the life-force, smitten by the stroke of grief, shakes both the whole body and the eyes also, from which it presses out and causes to flow the moisture that lies within. Tears like these fall by a forcing-out process against our will. But different are the tears which we allow to escape when we muse in memory upon those whom we have lost. And there is in them a certain sweet sadness when we remember the sound of a pleasant voice, a genial conversation, and the busy duties of yore. At such a time the eyes are loosened, as it were, with joy. This sort of weeping we indulge. The former sort overcomes us. There is, then, no reason why, just because a group of persons is standing in your presence or sitting at your side, you should either check or pour forth your tears. Whether restrained or outpoured, they are never so disgraceful as when feigned. Let them flow naturally. But it is possible for tears to flow from the eyes of those who are quiet and at peace. They often flow without impairing the influence of the wise man with such restraint that they show no want either of feeling or of self-respect. We may, I assure you, obey nature, and yet maintain our dignity. I have seen men worthy of reverence, during the burial of those near and dear, with countenances upon which love was written clear even after the whole apparatus of mourning was removed, and who showed no other conduct than that which was allowed to genuine emotion. There is a comeliness, even in grief. This should be cultivated by the wise man. Even in tears, just as in other matters also, there is a certain sufficiency. It is with the unwise that sorrows, like joys, gush over. Except in an unruffled spirit that which is inevitable. What can happen that is beyond belief? or what that is new? How many men at this very moment are making arrangements for funerals? How many are purchasing grave clothes? How many are mourning when you yourself have finished mourning? As often as you reflect that your boy has ceased to be, reflect also upon man, who has no sure promise of anything, whom fortune does not inevitably escort to the confines of old age, but lets him go at whatever point she sees fit. You may, however, speak often concerning the departed, and cherish his memory to the extent of your power. This memory will return to you all the more often if you welcome its coming without bitterness, for no man enjoys converse with one who is sorrowful, much less with sorrow itself. And whatever words, whatever jests of his, no matter how much of a child he was, may have given you pleasure to hear, these I would have you recall again and again. Assure yourself confidently that he might have fulfilled the hopes which you, his father, had entertained. Indeed, to forget the beloved dead, to bury their memory along with their bodies, to bewail them bounteously and afterwards think of them but scantily, this is the mark of a soul below that of man. 
for that is the way in which birds and beasts love their young. Their affection is quickly roused and almost reaches madness, but it cools away entirely when its object dies. This quality does not befit a man of sense. He should continue to remember, but should cease to mourn. And in no wise do I approve of the remark of Metrodurus, that there is a certain pleasure akin to sadness, and that one should give chase thereto at such times as these. I am quoting the actual words of Metrodorus. I have no doubt what your feelings will be in these matters, for what is baser than to chase after pleasure in the very midst of mourning? Nay, rather by means of mourning, and even amid one's tears to hunt out that which will give pleasure. These are the men who accuse us of too great strictness, slandering our precepts because of supposed harshness. Because, say they, we declare that grief should either not be given place in the soul at all, or else should be driven out forthwith. But which is the more incredible or inhuman? To feel no grief at the loss of one's friend? Or to go a-hawking after pleasure in the midst of grief? That which we Stoics advise is honorable. When emotion has prompted a moderate flow of tears and has, so to speak, ceased to effervesce, the soul should not be surrendered to grief. And what do you mean, Metrodurus, by saying that with our very grief there should be a blending of pleasure? That is the sweet-meat method of pacifying children. That is the way we still the cries of infants by pouring milk down their throats. Even at the moment when your son's body is on the pyre, or your friend breathing his last, will you not suffer your pleasure to cease, rather than tickle your very grief with pleasure? Which is the more honorable, to remove grief from your soul or to admit pleasure even into the company of grief? Did I say admit? Nay, I mean chase after, and from the hands, too, of grief itself. Metrodorus says, There is a certain pleasure which is related to sadness. We Stoics may say that, but you may not. The only good which you recognize is pleasure, and the only evil, pain. And what relationship can there be between a good and an evil? But suppose that such a relationship does exist. Now, of all times, is it to be rooted out? Shall we examine grief also and see with what elements of delight and pleasure it is surrounded? Certain remedies, which are beneficial for some parts of the body, cannot be applied to other parts, because these are, in a way, revolting and unfit, and that which in certain cases would work to a good purpose without any loss to one's self-respect may become unseemly because of the situation of the wound. Are you not, similarly, ashamed to cure sorrow by pleasure? No. This sore spot must be treated in a more drastic way. This is what you should preferably advise, that no sensation of evil can reach one who is dead. For if it can reach him, he is not dead. And I say that nothing can hurt him who is as naught. For if a man can be hurt, he is alive." Do you think him to be badly off because he is no more, or because he still exists as somebody? And yet no torment can come to him from the fact that he is no more. 
for what feeling can belong to one who does not exist nor from the fact that he exists for he has escaped the greatest disadvantage that death has in it namely non-existence let us say this also to him who mourns and misses the untimely dead that all of us whether young or old live in comparison with eternity on the same level as regards our shortness of life for out of all time there comes to us less than what any one could call least since least is at any rate some part but this life of ours is next to nothing and yet fools that we are we marshal it in broad array these words i have written to you not with the idea that you should expect a cure from me at such a late date for it is clear to me that you have told yourself everything that you will read in my letter but with the idea that i should rebuke you even for the slight delay during which you lapsed from your true self and should encourage you for the future to rouse your spirit against fortune and to be on the watch for all her missiles not as if they might possibly come but as if they were bound to come farewell end of letter ninety nine recording by john van stan savannah georgia